Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 7, Remember the Alamo, the Texas Revolution of 1835-1836. to Before continuing on, I want to follow up from last week's episode to discuss why slavery is only tangentially mentioned here as well. Slavery did not form a significant issue in the Texas Revolution, although it was a minor part, just as it did not directly cause the near insurrection in South Carolina over nullification. However, I can assure you it won't be too long before slavery and race begins to take up much more of the narrative and in time we will see what the Confederates themselves have to say about the reason for secession. However, for the next step in our story, we have to leave behind the tax disputes of the Southeast and travel a thousand miles west into a very different coastal territory known as Tejas. This land, a wide and green tract ranging south and west of the Louisiana bayous, held great potential in little European settlement. Buckle up because this story will briefly cover a decade or more of Mexican history. I regret that we have only this portion to share, although if there is any interest, we could go back and explore the story of Mexico in more detail someday. After all, the revolution in Tejas was effectively one part of a running series of Mexican civil wars, no less dramatic or epic than the American. Just a heads up, I will do my best to provide all names a proper pronunciation, but I'm not a native speaker of Spanish or Mexican Spanish, and must acknowledge some amount of failure. Also, I need to apologize for the brevity of the following account. There's so much history here that a full story could easily occupy an entire podcast of its own. Back in 1824, the newly independent state of Mexico enacted an immigration policy which invited new settlers to the sparsely inhabited Tejas region with few restrictions on national origin. This border area, far from the power center of colonial Mexico, had been largely ignored in the Spanish colonial era, with only a few settlers in small towns, leaving most of it in the control of Native American tribes. The land was, therefore, at least in the Mexican government's opinion, essentially free and available for the taking, because they respected Native American land claimed little more than the United States. Seeing this opportunity, Many Anglo-Americans accepted the invitation to settle, quickly becoming the major influence in the Tejas region. Complicating matters, however, was the fact that Tejas was in a combined government with the Coahuila state, yet retained its own quasi-government due to the great distances involved. It simply didn't function geographically. Coahuila was in north-central Mexico, and communications meant a long ride just to reach the Rio Grande. And unlike neighboring Tamaulipas, there was no sea access. Among the conflicts with existing residents was their constant agitation for freer trade with the United States, that the settlers didn't convert to Roman Christianity, that their obedience to Mexican law in general was shaky, and that they were overly attached to their slaves, though few slaves had been brought in at this time. However, these issues paled in comparison to the wobbly condition of the Mexican government, caught in a cycle of faction and quasi-revolution. Even issues such as the location of a state capital could, in Coahuila y Tejas did, result in clashes of armed men. However, we should also note that ethnic tensions were not a major part of the clashes at this time. The developing cultural agglomeration of Tejanos, whether of American descent or proud Mexican citizens, did not have a vastly different cultural outlook due to the opportunities and limitations of life on the frontier, far from the seat of strength for any other government. In any case, 
Tejas began to move towards independence after General Antonio López de Santa Ana took power in the 1830s. And in order to explain these events, we need to step back and explore the life of this man. Additionally, I will not always use the day when referring to Santa Ana specifically by his last name, as that forms quite a mouthful and historians commonly abbreviate it anyway. Also, just so you know, the man's full name was the rather extraordinary Antonio de Padua Maria Severino López de Santa Ana y Pérez de Lebron, and I will not try to say that three times fast. Santa Ana's life was interesting in the may-you-live-in-interesting-times sense. He belongs to that strange class of heroic populist adventurers who define much of Latin American history, if not always for the better. During the Mexican Revolution, he originally championed the cause of the Spanish crown as a young officer, gaining valuable experience fighting rebels. However, Santa Ana may have learned some of the wrong lessons. His opponents had courage and a cause, but they also had less discipline and training. Furthermore, he served in the force led by the legendarily brutal José de Arredondo, who made sure that intimidation by physical violence was part of the anti-rebel message. After ten years of war suppressing the independence faction, in 1821, de Santa Ana followed the path of the famous commander Iturbide and switched sides to join the independence faction. This would mark the permanent and very rapid downward spiral of Spanish power in Mexico, as Santa Ana was hardly alone in his choice. The talented and savvy Iturbide brought the balance of force with him. This political flip marked the first of many such well-timed twists in Santa Ana's long career. He would, for almost the rest of his life, join the winning side right when he could obtain considerable and immediate rewards. Iturbide recognized that de Santa Ana had come over quickly and without needing any promises or bribes or threats, and named the latter commander of the garrison at Veracruz, long the gateway between Mexico and the sea. Either way, soon after accepting his new commission from Iturbide, de Santa Ana switched sides once again to join the anti-Iturbide faction, partly because Iturbide removed Santa Ana from his post almost before the ink was dry. At this moment, the Mexican Revolution had become less a contest of royal Spanish authority against Mexican independence and more a question of which warlord would set the terms. Furthermore, Iturbide had perhaps let success go a little to his head, declaring himself emperor and trying to reign as a European monarch. In that context, de Santa Ana's switch does not appear especially treacherous, and we should note that he never pretended personal loyalty to Iturbide himself. However, this was the second time that Santa Ana had shown his willful political independence, and it would not be the last. And once again, he learned well from his leader, but perhaps not the right lessons. After one year from declaring himself emperor, rebellion drove Iturbide into exile, and a nominally democratic government coalesced. Mexico should have entered an age of peace and growth, but that decade saw political struggles and more rebellions. None of these quite succeeded in establishing a new authority, but they also didn't result in a stronger or more legitimate government. Regional Caudillo, such as de Santa Ana, had their own power bases and resisted centralization, but also made few moves to create a new unified government of their own. In 1829, de Santa Ana received a new opportunity to revive his flagging career, being called upon to defeat a small Spanish force sent to reassert royal authority. This force ran right into an enemy far more deadly than Mexican bullets. 
yellow fever. Weakened by disease, they became pitifully easy prey for Santa Anna. Not content with his victory, however easy, he then began calling himself, I am not making this up, the Napoleon of the West. One suspects that quite a few alternative military commanders, from George Washington to Simon Bolivar to Toussaint Louverture, would have been more deserving of the title. Either way, the now famous Santa Ana would become president of Mexico himself, so perhaps his PR strategy worked. And yet here's where his troubles really began, as they often do when encountering success after success. De Santa Ana liked the trappings of power, but he didn't care much for the day-to-day -day trivialities of leadership, while the men above, below, and around him engaged in, politely, swirling political chaos. The turmoil between liberal and conservative Mexico created a very unpleasant dynamic of exile and counter-exile, financial mismanagement, and popular disgust that's difficult to fully document. So although it's a gross simplification, for our purposes, let's say that when he came to power in the refounded República Centralista de México in 1835, Santa Ana flipped the previous regime on this head and began a tough-minded centralization plan, one which proved to be markedly unpopular. As in, so unpopular, it sparked the revolt of multiple states against the central government, including Tejas, all the states in northeastern and north-central Mexico, plus the entire Yucatan Peninsula. Santa Ana certainly had extensive experience fighting rebels all around Mexico, including both Tejas and the Yucatan, but this would, in the end, prove more than he could manage. Now, the Americans who settled in Teos neither really fit with Mexican politics, nor were assimilating into Mexican culture, probably because there were only a small number of native Mexican nationals in the entire Teos region. No amount of fiddling with the government construction could change the fact that they weren't, as it turned out, never would be, a definitive part of Mexico administratively or culturally. Had they been mixed with a greater Mexican element, it is possible that the region would not have rebelled. But there were major factors pointing against that, not the least of which were religion, language, and the fact that they still bordered American territory. Now, Santa Ana's first move was to attack the closest rebellions, not distant Tejas. This allowed him to claim a measure of victory, and it was necessary for him to target these first because they were closer to the center of Mexican power. Yet de Santa Ana neither had the time to solidify control, nor did he ever reach even an informal settlement with the various rebel groups. He won victories in the field, yes but at no point were the basic divisions resolved in a political sense, and he failed to thoroughly reassert central authority. He marched in, declared victory, and then left these regions in semi-chaos while he planned a new invasion of Teos. And now we turn to the other great player who would shape the events to come. Sam Houston was a somewhat uh, colorful Tennessee politician and a strong supporter of Andrew Jackson's populism, who journeyed to Teos to make a fresh start having encountered serious setbacks after accusations of defrauding Cherokee Indians and, I am not making this up, publicly beating the opposition congressman who accused him. Houston hired, and I am not making this up, the national anthem composer Francis Scott Key for his legal defense against the charges of assault. The court still found Houston guilty as hell, probably because he attacked a man in broad daylight in the middle of Washington, D.C., so Houston took some minor legal medicine and then went off to Tejas in 1833, where he immediately got involved in politics again, his life obviously not being complicated enough. 
Houston became a delegate to the consultation, the quasi-legislature for Teos instead of the combined region with Coahuila. Two years later, he reacted to the new, aggressively centralizing Mexican government by becoming a promoter of Texan independence, although he was certainly neither the first nor the most important to spread that idea. While almost all Texans opposed the new de Santa Ana-led government, many wanted only to restore the previous constitution of 1824. By 1835, however, political positions had radicalized. The issue was debated hotly, but in the meantime, Texas established its own military, led by Houston. You'll note that we just switched from discussing Tejas to Texas. That is a deliberate choice, for at this moment the political foundation of a new, if relatively small, country had just been laid. And it would not look entirely like the United States or Mexico, but rather a strange new admixture of the two. One of Sam Houston's first actions as commander of the Texan forces was to order the small group gathering at the Alamo to retreat. Houston, though a soldier in the War of 1812 and a survivor of several battle wounds, had never led any kind of army. He also had fewer than 400 soldiers at this moment, whereas Santa Ana was already invading with close to 2,000. So without further ado, let's turn to the Alamo to see why Houston wanted to evacuate it and why it turned into a crucial turning point. The short version is that the Alamo simply wasn't built as a fort. It was, of course, famously a Franciscan mission. While mission houses were often built to be reasonably defensible in case of attack by hostile American Indians or Native American peoples, they were most definitely not designed to stand up to a modern army equipped with cannon. The Alamo itself had been abandoned as a mission 40 years earlier, and then turned into a minor military post for Spanish and later Mexican troops. But this still never turned into a serious fortification. In December of 1835, with rebellion breaking out all around, the leader of the small Mexican garrison present at the Alamo surrendered it to Texan soldiers. I should pause to point out that the Alamo was hardly located in the middle of a barren plain. San Antonio was a small town by the standards of almost anywhere that wasn't a colonial backwater, but still sizable for Texas at this time. Indeed, the Texans weren't even there to specifically capture the Alamo, but to hold San Antonio. The Alamo presented itself as simply the only strong point available, and that's where the Texas garrison holed up. However, de Santa Ana was already moving north, and 200 militiamen in the Alamo would be no more than a speed bump. As I mentioned earlier, Houston called for the garrison to retreat and join his already too small force, fearing that Santa Ana would easily devour the Texans if they divided in the face of superior numbers. However, the men at the Alamo stayed put while their commander, William Travis, instead requested reinforcements. He received a few local men, but certainly not nearly enough. The volunteers who fought alongside him, however, included legends such as the charismatic Tejano leader Juan Seguin and the famous frontiersmen Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie. These men might argue with each other as eagerly as they would fight an external foe, but they were still bold adventurers and often very good shots. As it turned out, the Battle of the Alamo would allow them to use their skills to exceptional effect and begin turning the tide against Santa Ana. So, what happened at the battle? On paper, Santa Ana's victory was assured. He marched up in late February of 1836 with over 1,500 trained soldiers with modern armaments, and more to follow, facing down a mere 150 Texas militia. However, Santa Ana did have some problems, with the first being that the Alamo sat right atop his supply lines south. He did not necessarily need to take the fort immediately, 
but his control over the area would remain non-existent until he did, and it would be better if he could avoid leaving it behind him or having to detach troops to bottle up the defenders while he moved onward. Santa Anna tried first for a bloodless victory, attempting to intimidate the defenders into surrendering, which completely failed. Part of the problem might have been that the defenders viewed his mercy as highly questionable, given that Santa Anna's army had already raised the flag to signify no quarter, which does not usually lead to negotiations or surrenders. However, the ensuing siege didn't unfold according to military textbook practice either. The Mexican forces did not entirely surround the Alamo, and small parties could and did slip back and forth during the siege. Which is exactly why Juan Seguin, for example, was actually able to make his way out in order to attempt to get reinforcements, and why he survived. Santa Anna did not attack foolishly, at least. Yet he perhaps did not make the best use of time, and would end up spending too much energy testing the Alamo's defenses and wearing down the defender's endurance than necessary, and too little preparing for the attack. The defenders also demonstrated courage and tenacity in parrying the initial feints and maneuvers, and kept these from doing any real harm. Nonetheless, the Mexican forces remained professional, better supplied, and far more numerous, while their commander, de Santa Ana, spent a great deal of his time engaging in a local public relations campaign. Finally, at the end of the first week of March, de Santa Ana ordered a full assault on the Alamo. This did not go well. The plan, detailed by General Amador, was a sound one and effectively used his larger force to attack from every angle at once, giving the defenders no respite, while also making sure that the troops had everything needed to scale walls or otherwise break through. Nonetheless, the defenders managed to repulse multiple assaults before the Mexican soldiers were able to enter the mission. Although it took more time, energy, and blood than Amador hoped, once soldiers did manage to break through, victory was assured. However, taking the Alamo had become a bloody affair, and de Santa Ana lost around 600 casualties, a steep proportion of his 1,800-man strength on hand. In retrospect, Santa Ana made several critical mistakes. He could have assaulted the fort immediately, hoping to take the defenders by surprise, or he could have waited for his heavy guns. He instead opted to pay a steep price in blood, and then hurt morale in the aftermath by treating his wounded sloppily and without concern. Finally, he then had the remaining Alamo survivors executed. After men from nearby Goliad surrendered honorably on terms, he had them all executed as well. The net effect of this was to turn him into an instant villain, not merely an opponent in the eyes of every Texan, and to rouse the entire countryside against him while his own army started giving him suspicious glances. News of the defeat reached the Texas Convention almost immediately after they had finally voted to separate from Mexico entirely. And here is where Santa Ana's campaign truly took a wrong turn, though he did not know it yet. De Santa Ana believed that his no-mercy stance would produce submission through fear. In practice, it produced something like unstoppable rage, which almost anyone else would have seen coming. Additionally, the timing of the battle might have been accidentally self-defeating. Texans may have hesitated had the news reached the convention before the vote, but coming afterward, as it did, the revolutionaries could no longer afford to back down. Meeting strength to strength might fail, but only a fool would rely on De Santa Anna's mercy now.
For the next few weeks, Texans fell back before De Santa Ana's invasion. But this ultimately served to concentrate Texan forces in the east. By this point, Santa Ana believed the rebellion was practically over, and he simply had to keep moving forward and drive his enemies into submission or flight entirely. Sam Houston had other ideas. Houston chose a good place to site his forces, or maybe a good site to place his forces. San Jacinto was a heavily wooded bayou, making it extremely hard to traverse without local experience or guides, and perfect for ambushes. This is precisely how it eventually went down, with Texas forces sneaking up onto a Mexican breastwork and charging straight over before anyone knew what was happening. If that description sounds a little flat, it's only because this particular operation went almost too well. There's an old saying that no plan survives contact with the enemy, but in this case, no enemy survived contact with the plan. Mexican morale cracked instantly, a victory so lopsided it eventually ended the invasion of Texas essentially on the spot. The battle was famously won in a ridiculous 18 minutes, making it significantly shorter than this podcast, as the leaders of the Mexican army were themselves overrun in that initial single charge. The troops under their command, already demoralized, exhausted, miserable, and quite possibly none too enthused about their ostensible government in the first place, panicked and fled the field as fast as they could run. Meanwhile, angry Texan forces, scattered and soon out of control, kept up a bloody chase for hours. In all, some 650 Mexican troops had died, and a similar number taken captive. Among those taken captive was one General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. However, the real victory came not because of the casualties of one battle, but because of the political upheaval it sparked and the danger of those long supply lines to the Mexican armies. Even after San Jacinto, all Mexican forces together had at least 4,000 soldiers available in this field, far more than the Texans. But Santa Ana's defeat and capture removed him from the political scene, and rivals previously kept in line jumped to take his place immediately. Simultaneously, individual Mexican commanders and garrisons, low on supplies after a long campaign and without any direction, began falling back to friendlier territory before their forces were decimated by hunger, or they were cut off and surrounded. De Santa Ana, with political powers as a near dictator, had left no solid structure able to act in his absence. In practice, Texas had all but achieved the independence it sought in two months. Santa Ana would spend his captivity obligingly making deals in exchange for his life, although their legal force in retrospect looked awfully dubious, since he had been effectively deposed. One deal which I want to point out specifically, because it will shortly become a serious political issue, was that de Santa Ana offered Texas a legal treaty acknowledging their independence with a potential boundary at the Rio Grande. The reconsolidating Mexican government, for their part, didn't concede the issue, recognize Texas or the Rio Grande boundary, or acknowledge that de Santa Ana held authority to bargain at all, and would continue to make efforts to reassert authority in Texas over the next decade, but without much impact. Now, these events were not ignored by the other major powers sharing the North American continent, the United States and Great Britain, in Canada and the Caribbean in the latter's case. Both powers eyed Texas with interest, and the contest between them to expand upon the continent would play a critical role in sparking the Civil War, as well as a fateful presidential election. And for this episode, that's it for the politics of Texas. 
Join us next time as we dive into the twists of American politics that will lead to an unexpected presidency and John C. Calhoun's first material step towards securing a slaveholding empire. Thank you for joining us for the American Civil War podcast. We'll see you next time.